You're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we are your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode, we'll focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod, or send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Kyle, so we're back. We uh, put away the tissue boxes for a while, and uh, we're back talking bests. We're back in bests. We're leaving the land of sad, and we're entering the world of sidekicks. Um, it, as sad as the Pixar moments were, uh, those were some pretty funny episodes. So I'm glad that we survived. We felt like we still had the momentum and the will to go on with this podcast after getting so low. Um, so we're we're talking sidekicks this week, and Chris, uh, to you. So we've done duos, we've done villainous henchmen. What what's a sidekick to you? Well, first of all, I want to point out that there are a lot of Disney sidekicks. Uh, so we had to put away Pixar, we put away Marvel, we put away Star Wars, that kind of stuff. So we're on like Disney branded only sidekicks, and each movie there's like two or three. So um, there were a lot of characters to choose from here. And when I got the bracket, I was like, there's so many that were missed. But I'm like, (laughs) but you can't really take any of these out either. So it was a lot like song where, man, uh, you know, not everyone's going to make it. Um, But to me, a good sidekick is someone who has a different personality from the hero. Someone who can make the hero better both as a person, but who also assists in the character achieving their goal. You know, there's someone who is useful to us, the audience, in making the movie better, but also useful in the world of the movie to, you know, help solve problems and that type of stuff. So um, humor is also another really good thing for a sidekick to have. Uh, So I think, you know, we're going to be looking for someone with a lot of balance. What do you know about sidekicks, Kyle? Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you brought humor into that because sometimes I agree with that. Sometimes I don't. I think it depends on the situation. But a key point that you brought up was assisting the protagonist or the hero or whoever in accomplishing a goal. And I think that's super important. And that's what kind of separates sidekicks from duos. I think uh, we're going to see in this bracket, people are going to be like, well, where's so-and-so because the, they helped accomplish a goal. And it's like, yeah, but they were probably dual protagonists in that sense. So um, I'm excited to hop into this bracket and to help us decide the best Disney sidekick. We're doing a first tier, Chris. We have two guest hosts helping us out. It is my best friend since kindergarten, Eric, and his partner, Alyssa. Everybody, what up? Hello. <laughs> oh, Hello. What a nice intro. <laughs> so uh, obviously you guys have listened to the podcast before. You reached out, told us that you you were digging what we were doing here. What's your connection to Disney? Um, are you guys fans? Are you fans of movies? <laughs> yeah, I like movies. Um, S- some people me, do. <laughs> uh, for me, 
I'm specifically more drawn to like the 90s era of Disney animation, so all of the films mentioned here are very near and dear to my heart. Um, when the live action remake started happening, that's when I kind of like stopped paying attention when Frozen happened. Sorry, I stopped paying attention. <laughs> I think it's more of like a childhood type of uh, love for me, Disney, and um, there's like a very special nostalgic place in my heart. So that's where I'm at with Disney. Well, okay. <laughs> Hard to follow up on. Um, no, I think my family brought Disney into my life. I think both my parents enjoyed Disney movies themselves, and that's a lot of what I watched growing up. My mom loves to celebrate Christmas, and she loves Christmas, and she loves Disney so much that we have, on occasion, a Disney Christmas tree in one oh, of the rooms yeah. of our house. It's... Oh, quite yeah. a lot of Disney ornaments. Um, <laughs> but in general, I love the films. I love the storytelling. Um, again, like Alyssa, I think I dropped off at one point, but I think that there's room for Disney as adult Eric. Hey, that's what we're here for. We're here to, <laughs> to bring back that adult Disney. I mean, we, uh, we talk about the nuances because it's fun. And maybe uh, you'll find something that you didn't quite remember that you loved so much about it especially when we start talking sidekicks here well speaking of adults it's time for my favorite segment the spoonful of sugar segment where we talk what we're drinking today kyle what's in your cup man i had an experience with this spoonful of sugar today i uh felt like i wanted to do another cocktail so i went on to uh, the google machine and i looked up uh some of the old cove bars drink recipes from uh disney california adventure and i found one that specifically stuck out to me because i am a huge pirates of the caribbean fan and they had a drink called the black pearl so i tried to make it um turns out that this website was awful <laughs> and they listed the ingredients but only gave the measurements for the alcohol and then nothing else. So I'm just blindly like, okay, I don't know what this is supposed to look like. I don't know what this is supposed to taste like. So I went ahead and made it. So this is the ingredients that are in the Black Pearl from the defunct Cove Bar at DCA. Might be at Lamplight now. It is ice, obviously. Uh, wow. It, a half an ounce of rum, half an ounce of vodka, half an ounce of gin, sweet and sour, black raspberry liqueur and a lemon slice now you'll notice there was no measurements on the sweet and sour or the black raspberry liqueur so i didn't know what to do so i just tried so i mixed it all together i went an ounce of sweet and sour and an ounce of black raspberry liqueur which if you know what sweet and sour is that just means that i'm just drinking like a mixed alcohol concoction with like a little slice of citrus in there um so i tasted it and it was awful so i went online to find a <laughs> tutorial and i found that most of the drink is sweet and sour and everything else is uh the mixture so i ran out of sweet and sour and put sprite in it so now i have my own black pearl <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah so it was an adventure so i hope that uh caution is uh taken when you try and recreate this drink chris what are you drinking this week so um my household has been on a juice kick 
like one ingredient juices, two ingredient juices, and we picked up some 100% cranberry juice this week, which I had never had before. I've only had like the stuff in the Welch's or Ocean Spray. And oh my God, 100% cranberry is like drinking a warhead. <laughs> like it's so sour. But I was like, if you mix this with like any type of alcohol, it would be amazing. So I was like, what is my favorite tasting alcohol and i landed on mezcal so i put like probably probably like i don't know four ounces of this cranberry juice and like half an ounce of mezcal and it looks like i'm drinking like a brandy or something yeah um and oh my god it's like it's like a flavor explosion i'm calling it the thumper because every time i take a sip my my foot starts tapping a little bit like i feel like i'm gonna hit the roof uh, oh, let's go to Alyssa. What are you drinking? Well, I'm basic and I have a tangerine white claw. I guess it's not too basic because it's a new flavor for the summer um, mm. and I have yet to try it. But to your point, whoa, about the 100% cranberry juice, that means you also won't get a UTI. So that's nice. <laughs> the more you know, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bonus. Well, you supposedly, know? yeah. <laughs> so I'm having a tangerine white claw <laughs> and I just made a mess. Love it. Eric, what are you drinking over there? I am drinking, I forgot about the spoonful of sugar, and I sat down, and I was ready to record, and then I texted Kyle, ran downstairs, and poured what was remaining of a Minute Maid lemonade light, Mm -hmm. it's light, (laughs) um, grapefruit soda, and then a lot of tequila. So that's what I'm having this week. Ooh, you and uh, Chris in the agave world throwing a little... uh... Little mezcal, little it's the tequila. Best. It's it's literally the best. There's no other alcohol in my eyes. I will cheers to that. <laughs> Yum. Okay, Kyle. Well, every good bracket has a great demographic. We had some uh, some movement on the Disney parks front this week, so uh, we had a, a a bit of fun identifying this bracket's demographic. Kyle, who are we able to? round up oh man by the time you're listening to this you're probably about a week removed from the opening of the reservation system for disney world so people with tickets already that couldn't use them because the parks closed or annual passes were able to make a reservation for a future date to one park at disney world at a time and of course if you know anything about reservation systems online It is an awful experience and sites (laughs) often crash. So uh, our favorite Diz Twitter was up in arms on Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was. And uh, everything was fine. It was cool. Everyone was really happy and (laughs) calm and understanding of everything. Just like they were at the launch of Disney Plus. The one thing that I will say about Disney fans is they are always understanding, Chris. They are always (laughs) understanding. Um. So some people did end up getting reservations and they made sure that we all knew they got reservations, which made it very easy for the interns to go out and find folks who successfully acquired reservations to Disney World and to ask them who their favorite sidekicks were so that we could get a bracket of 16. And of course, this demographic, if you're willing to, in this COVID environment, make a reservation for a theme park, you are dedicated and probably a big Disney fan, so it makes sense a lot of these picks that they gave us uh, were a little bit questionable and kind of deep cuts. So um, super excited to hop into it, but of course, before we announce the bracket, 
we got to talk about who missed the dance. Yeah, Kyle, like I said, there are a lot of sidekicks that didn't make our top 16. And we, by default, threw out people we've already talked about in our best duos bracket or in our best heroes bracket. So we had a lot of people on the fence, you know, like those Timothys, yep. those uh, Vanilla Peas and Ralphs yep. that kind of feel sidekickish, but we decided to just talk about some new people we haven't talked about before. So uh, a couple of glaring ones for me. First of all, were Sven and Pua. Pua, I think, was just criminally robbed in Moana. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, he just was on the beach. It, they just left him. The entire crowd and audience that has seen this movie roots for Pua to go on this adventure. And who do we get? <laughs> hey, hey. Get hey, hey, who is just a clown and completely useless. Sven is... A sidekick to Kristoff, but he kind of doesn't really serve any of the other main characters in Frozen very well. He also doesn't talk, which is the case for a few characters that did make this bracket, and they become problematic slightly. We'll talk about that a little bit more later, but uh, not shocking there. The other one for me that was big was Baymax. We haven't really talked much about Big Hero 6 on this podcast. Baymax is another one of those ones where it could go both ways. He could be seen as a hero by some people. He could be seen as a sidekick by some people. He is kind of a dynamic duo. So, yeah, those those blurred lines, I think, ultimately worked against uh, all of those characters. Kyle? What are a couple of obvious miss the dances for you? All right. Number one obvious miss the dance is Timmy Q Mouse, our boy Big Tim from Timmy. Dumbo. Um, I hot think Tim. Hot <laughs> Tim. I think that uh, he Timmy Q was in our duos with Dumbo. And what's interesting about their dynamic is that Dumbo doesn't talk. Really, Timmy's talking for Dumbo the entire time. So they're really working together, and I don't think that like Dumbo is necessarily the hero. They they feel very hand in hand to me, so I understand why they didn't make the dance. Um, but also Timmy wouldn't have because we've already talked about him, and that duo went pretty far in the last bracket we did. So, uh, and then second should come no surprise to listeners of this podcast. Sergeant Tibbs from 101 Dalmatians, Walt Disney's greatest production that he's ever created in the animated world. 101 Dalmatians. All right, calm down. <laughs> Let's just uh, calm down for a second. Um, the reason why I think Sergeant Tibbs just missed the dance was that he uh, he helped save the day at the end. Um, but I what I do understand is that he played such a small part in the entire movie that he's not going to be the first thing that people yeah. think about when they think sidekick. So... Um, Although it breaks my heart, as it always does when I have to dismiss 100 Wild Dalmatians. <laughs> Got to do it again. And Sergeant Tibbs just missed the dance. Alyssa and Eric, any um, kind of glaring omissions from you guys here? Yeah, I was thinking Timon and Pumbaa, but that was explained to me that they were talked about and also were kind of protagonists in their own right in that movie versus sidekicks yep. and a duo as well. So. That would be my only complaint. And then everything you just said makes total sense. Yeah, I w I'm glad to hear you all define sidekick because I think I was conflating a, a couple of duos, Lilo and Stitches of the world. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But to get a confirmed definition of sidekick, I feel, I feel grounded in this bracket. Okay, Kyle, enough wasting time. I've got my light magic shirt on. I'm ready to cause some trouble here. So <laughs> let's get right into it and announce our top 16 
best Disney sidekicks. So, of course, we must cue the dramatic music. Coming in at number one from The Little Mermaid, he's a real guppy, Flounder. Yo, Rugman! <laughs> Coming in at the number two seed from the movie Aladdin, it's Genie. Coming in at number three from Frozen, my name's Olaf and I like hot takes. I live! <laughs> Coming in at number four from the movie Mulan, it's Mushu. Coming in at number five, a magnificent horse with the brain of a bird from Hercules, Pegasus. If you can't say nothing nice, say it anyways, because this is Mouse Madness. Coming in at number six, it's Thumper from Bambi. Hi-ho! Coming in at number seven from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, it's the Seven Dwarves. Making a decision on this podcast is a lot like choosing pink or blue. Coming in at number eight, from Sleeping Beauty, it's Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. I'm speechless. Coming in at number nine from Pocahontas, Miko and Flit. When I'm human, and I'm gonna be. Coming in at number 10 from the movie Princess and the Frog, it is Lewis. What? Coming in at number 11 from Robin Hood, Little John. <laughs> Hope you've got your sassy pants on. Coming in at number 12 from the movie Peter Pan, it's Tinkerbell. When will this bracket end? Coming in at number 13 from Tangled, Pascal. Coming in at number 14 from the movie Tarzan, it's Turk. Pour the wine and cut the cheese for the number 15 seed from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Victor, Hugo, and Laverne. Be our guest to try and defend Cogsworth and Lumiere, our number 16 seed from Beauty and the Beast. There it is, our 16 sidekicks. Alyssa and Eric, uh, your initial reactions. Solid. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's <laughs> solid something, I'll tell you that. Some of these definitely stand out more than others. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. I'm ready to get into the weeds on this. I think your <laughs> intro's inspired me i really feel ready to tackle this bracket (laughs) just the musicality and i'm ready to go all right well let's just get right into it then we'll start off with our first matchup the number one seed flounder versus number 16 cogsworth and lumiere i will start off by saying this flounder as a number one seed is absolutely criminal this is (laughs) a very 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 weak sidekick i will admit some solid name appeal like <laughs> really recognizable character flounder but um pretty useless in my opinion and oh. i'll tell you why so uh we're introduced to flounder at this sunken ship and it becomes very evident very quickly that flounder is a scaredy cat and ariel is kind of the opposite where she tends to swim towards danger because she's excited by it because her dad's a jerk and is way too controlling over here. And Flounder is just, like, scared. And he really reminds me of Chucky from the Rugrats. Yeah, big time. Um, <laughs> big time Chucky energy. Yeah. <laughs> big Chuck energy. <laughs> Ariel throws the shade at Flounder, don't be a guppy, which I feel like is something that, like, she probably says to him a lot. I think I only like fish are allowed to say that. Yeah, she... Um, 
it seems to affect him because, you know, it gets him to go inside the uh, the old boat there. So from a story perspective, like us just watching the movie, Flounder being a scaredy cat is kind of a good thing because it adds a lot of stress to a lot of situations in the movie because he's like kind of inept and incapable of doing things. So like when they're in the sunken ship and there's a shark coming and Flounder's like, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. It makes the situation feel a lot more intense, like time is of the essence and then when Flounder is struggling to carry Ariel out to the wedding boat, him being just like a derp makes it more stressful because he's like not this like super strong fish. But apparently he is because one thing Flounder did that was, I guess, really nice for Ariel was bring a life-size statue of Prince Eric to her <laughs> little grotto. Strong as hell. How does a little tiny fish... <laughs> Swim with like a giant stone statue through water. I don't know how he did it. Must have had some help. But um, it ends up being kind of something that doesn't work out in Ariel's favor because King Triton sees it and blasts Prince Eric straight in the face. So like that's just Flounder blowing up Ariel's spot and kind of like getting her in trouble. And this is after... Flounder already got Ariel in trouble once when Triton was like, where were you? You missed the concert. And Flounder was like, oh, yeah, we were up on the uh, surface talking to some seagulls. And King Triton got super pissed off and assigned Sebastian to keep an eye on them. So Flounder, not exactly, I don't want to say he's not loyal. He just kind of like is a screw up. And then on the other side here, we've got Cogsworth and Lumiere who... Man, I have a lot of notes on these two. <laughs> and but but it's good. It's good. These are two characters that are central to Beauty and the Beast. And this is a movie that I think has a lot of problems in it. Um but if you watch this movie like through the lens of Cogsworth and Lumiere, it becomes a much better movie and it becomes about something completely different. It becomes less about like two people falling in love like forcibly to a group of friends trying to help out their, I don't know, prince. It becomes a group of friends. It becomes a a group of friends trying to help out their other friend, the beast fall in love. Right. They're caught in a really interesting situation where they are loyal to the beast in that they have to like respond to his day to day orders. For example, like, keep an eye on bell make sure bell doesn't go in the west wing but they also have this like natural desire to be hospitable so they also kind of like serve bell as a sidekick role in that way because they're nice people and they want to make her feel at home on top of the fact that it's in their best interests for bell to fall in love with the beast because then they get to be human again that's what i was gonna say ulterior motive right yeah Alter- slight ulterior motive Lumiere obviously gets one of the biggest moments in Beauty and the Beast when he sings Be Our Guest. Uh, as Kyle would probably say, it's an iconic Disney song. Drink That's for the I had in my notes. Drink for That's the what I had in my notes. But Lumiere also plays an interesting role in the romance between Belle and the Beast. Lumiere is framed as this like very suave charismatic charming romantic guy or at least maybe he was in the past life we see him with Babette so he's got a love interest 
and he is able to help out the beast right before the big Beauty and the Beast ballroom dance scene. He's given a bunch of tips. So I like that. <laughs> and then let's talk about the climax. I mean, super important. They are the ones who basically fight the entire village and get them out of the castle. Cogsworth puts on his little French Revolution outfit and stabs <laughs> LeFou in the butt. Lumiere lights a man on fire. <laughs> And this is all Lumiere's idea, by the way, because the beast is up in his little room, super sad, sad boy beast, furry, brooding mess. And they're like, dude, we got to do something. He's like, just let them come in. I don't care. (laughs) And so Lumiere has to take it into his own hands to plan this like defense of the castle, which is just such a clutch move for a sidekick. Also in that scene, there is at least one confirmed death besides Gaston. <laughs> that um, giant armoire, which probably weighs like 500 pounds, jumps like three stories and lands on a man and like just like crushes him. And then like you see him, he's just like dead. Like he's literally just <laughs> laying there completely dead. So um, yeah, they don't hold back. They, they, these enchanted objects pull no punches to get what they want. I think they get a really funny happily ever after when they get turned back into humans. Lumiere sees Babette, human Babette walk by and he's like, all right, it's time to go kiss my lady. (laughs) And then like Cogsworth rolls up and then they're just like bickering and then they just get into a fight. And like, that's the last we see of them, Um, which is pretty much how we got introduced to them as well. I think Cogsworth and Lumiere are top tier sidekicks for so many different reasons. So I have an easy upset here. I got the 16 over the one going Cogsworth and Lumiere over Flounder. I agree with you that Flounder should most certainly not be the number one seed. And I think folks on this podcast already understand that I'm not the biggest Little Mermaid fan because I was very underwhelmed by that movie. Chris, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Lumiere and Cogsworth were accomplices to a kidnapping. <laughs> I will not stand here and defend them. And so I am moving Flounder on based upon that, which means we are going to have our first tie break. And it's going to be. Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> I, Dude, they, they were accomplices to Belle's kidnapping, to Belle's dad's kidnapping. Like. <laughs> forget the love story but my they girl want to be like, human my girl yeah so they're they're working towards a personal goal now they they kidnapped somebody this was something that crossed my mind because like this flower petal is about to die and they say mm-hmm. that it's been 10 years that they've been mm-hmm. objects so i'm like what have they been doing for 10 years have they just been like kidnapping <laughs> and like eating people for 10 years those oh, questions man. to All be right, asked. Alyssa. Yeah. Okay. We, we have All I have here. to say is that Flounder could never. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you can't compare the two when Flounder has done nothing for Ariel's growth, really, or like to to move the plot forward. He wasn't even he, there on land with her. You know, he went so. to battle. He took down <laughs> Flotsam and Jetsam with one flick of his fin. Boom. Done. Knocked out. I'm going with Cogsworth and Lumiere, for sure. (laughs) Also, based on the sheer amount of notes on them, I have to say, it's clear. 
<laughs> All right. Can't say that I uh, didn't expect that because I certainly <laughs> did. Um, that was a hail mary, we- Kyle. That was a hail mary. <laughs> I felt like it needed to be said, and that was what I was going to go with. All right. Let's move down the bracket. We have number eight, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether versus number nine, Miko and Flit. Um, for those of you at home who haven't seen Pocahontas in a long time, that's the raccoon and the hummingbird um, versus the fairies from Sleeping Beauty. Interesting stuff here because uh, what does what does Miko do besides like give Pocahontas the compass at the end and she's like it was pointing to him like he just eats he just eats he's so food motivated that's the (laughs) the whole thing like flit is a real one right flit's like yo don't trust this white dude and miko's like nah he has snacks though like (laughs) he's probably all right he feeds me it's chill and like we all know like that probably wasn't the right move but um, Flit can't talk, near Kamiko, so no one's actually listening to them. Um, I think that a plus for Miko is that he knows how to braid hair. There's a, a <laughs> scene in Pocahontas where he, like, Pocahontas talking to her best friend, whose name I don't remember, and Miko was just sitting back there just braiding up that hair. Like, he's, a, <laughs> at least he's, like, a good friend who knows what his other friend needs you know well raccoons are very dexterous they like know how to open things and they've stuff. got thumbs i don't yeah they can flush and a he toilet steals a lot of things in the movie he, he oh, yeah. does he's he's out there causing problems constantly he also uh when he decides to take the pocahontas leap off the cliff uh quickly regretted his decision and then decided to grab flit and just drown his bird friend with him um <laughs> I don't know if that was the right move. That seems a little rude. <laughs> I need to read a line from the uh, Disney fandom wiki page about Miko because it is absolutely outrageous and I couldn't stop laughing when I read it. They say throughout the film, oh, to introduce this, uh, Miko has a rivalry with Percy. Percy is like this pug that is like the the king's dog, the who cares whatever they're coming yes (laughs) thank you and uh so they say throughout the film miko and percy are constantly in pursuit of one another symbolizing the hatred between the natives and the settlers like no what we knew about we don't need symbolism the they there's a song about savages in this movie (laughs) we know how people feel about each other in this movie the rivalry doesn't symbolize that we it's bland it's bland <laughs> um i just had uh had to read oh gosh that was awful um flora fauna and merriweather like they are assigned to keep aurora hidden until she hits her 16th birthday when the curse is broken they don't do it very well in the home stretch because they she gets seen real quick uh when they're arguing over a birthday cake and and their magic powers are shooting out of the chimney and Diablo, that smart, smart henchman Diablo sees it. And he's like, I know exactly where Aurora is. Um, but where they do make up for that is that like low key there, they save the movie. They save Aurora. They, they, they save sure do. They, Prince Philip. Phil doesn't know Phil, what he's doing. Phil is just 
the puppet to what Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether are. They're like, oh, little poor boy, little soft boy, we need to rescue you from jail? Like, all right, we'll break you out. Oh, you don't have weapons, little soft boy? Okay, well, here's the sword of truth and the shield of virtue. Like, okay, go off. Like, just the most powerful things you could ever have. Um, And not only that, they, like, give the sword even more power so that (laughs) Philip can, like, throw it in order to, like, defeat Maleficent. Like, these are these are real ones. This this these are the true number one seeds in my mind here. So it's an easy pick for me. Miko and Flit don't do anything except for bicker and be a nuisance and add comedic value. But Florifon and Merryweather get things done. They're moving on here for me. Yeah, I mean, let's point out the fact that at the end, Merryweather gets her revenge on Diablo. She's the one who basically turns around and is like, "I've had enough of this." Little raven stoned. <laughs> Bam. So we can talk a little bit more about the character dynamics between them in a later round. But uh, I agree. Miko and Flit, pretty trash. And we're moving the three good fairies on to the next round. I do have to say, though, I watched Pocahontas last night. And Miko is the one who like nudged John Smith when Pocahontas was hiding. Um, and kind of like exposes her almost. Yeah. So he slightly drives the plot forward, but again, they're not very useful. Other, like they kind of make it digestible for kids to understand what's happening, but sure. And it also than... drives the plot forward in a way that Pocahontas did not want to happen. <laughs> she was like hiding out in the bushes, like "Yo, don't blow my cover," and he's like, "Oh, he got snacks." <laughs> <laughs> we talking snacks? He's an animal. That's his. Hey. That's his preferred stimuli. You have to <laughs> evaluate them with the, within their own brain capabilities. Which is Talk. why there's no competition. <laughs> right. Exactly. No prefrontal cortex. Magi- magical fairies or like simplistic raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the next matchup. It's number four, Mushu versus number thirteen, Pascal from Tangled. Pascal, of course, a chameleon who we are introduced to at the very beginning of Tangled. He is playing hide-and-seek with Rapunzel, and he turns into, like, a flower pot, and she finds him. Pascal is a lot... I would compare him a lot to, like, Flit, where he doesn't talk, but he at least kind of has some type of personality, and he can challenge Rapunzel at times with his eyes and, like, gesture with (laughs) his tail. For example, at the very beginning, after they're done playing hide and seek, Rapunzel's like, "What should we do next?" And Pascal like points his tail like out into like the distance, like they should get out of the tower, <laughs> which uh, is an attempt, I guess, at helping our hero get into something different. But ultimately, Pascal is really limited by the fact that he doesn't talk. And I can't remember which episode we talked about this was, but it might have been our Frozen Two review. Um, and like derpy little guys that like seems like every Disney movie has to have one yeah. these days. Yeah. Like Frozen 2 has like a little salamander thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey Hey's kind of one. Pua's kind of one. Sven's one. Miko and Flizz one. Where they're just and there I to be cute and not do anything for and the And sell bo- toys. Yeah. Basically <laughs> just sell toys. So Pascal is like basically one of those and Mushu has his own objectives. He's trying to 
fall back into good graces with the ancestors. He learns something along the way about being a part of a family. He also helps Mulan a lot throughout the movie. We can talk about it in another round, but um, he's working behind the scenes to help her, keep her safe. I will say this about Pascal. I love I See the Light. My favorite song in all of Disney, but the best shot in all of Tangled is during the very first song, <laughs> When Will My Life Begin? And she's listing all the things she does. And when she says ventriloquy, she's like pumping Pascal's tail. And he's like, burr, 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 burr. <laughs> it's so good. And his, eye, his eyes are like spinning in circles. I die every time. <laughs> every time. I have to say it's a top five Disney shot. It's so Like good. it's so. And so that song's good already. But if you rewatch that whole sequence and try to just like find Pascal in every single shot, this song's like 500 times better. Mm-hmm. So funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately it, da- it comes down to story, influencing the plot, influencing the main character effectively. Um, so I'm going with Mushu. I'm so glad you touched upon the when will my life begin montage because you're right. It's that of all montages, which we don't necessarily support on this podcast. This one's very well done because we don't want to see Rapunzel stuck in a tower for 20 straight minutes. Like we got to We got to roll this through via a song. Um, but the ventriloquist part, the part where she's like knitting a scarf and he's just like, sitting in like the role of a scarf <laughs> um him like carrying the candle all of those are just i think it's so well done and i feel like i've said this for the past i don't know four or five episodes that animators do such a good job with characters and their facial expressions and like conveying what the character is not only thinking but speaking through their kind of facial expressions and th- like pascal's that throughout the entire movie so there's portions where like pa- Pascal is the tough guy, even though like he's a little chameleon and he's there to stick up and protect Rapunzel, even though he doesn't, he knows he can't just like fight necessarily. He's a small lizard, but he's going to like try and intimidate. And there's multiple occasions where that happens. Um, he does it when uh, Flynn gets out of the river after they escape the henchmen and and Pascal is just sitting there next to him, just like looking at him, just smiling. And Flynn's like, <laughs> why, why is he smiling? <laughs> and I think that part's so funny. Um, he does it when uh, Maximus Flynn's uh, horse and they're, they're entering the kingdom across the bridge and there's a wanted poster and he tears it down and him and Maximus start fussing with it and it ends up on his face. And they start fighting a little bit and the camera pans to Pascal who's watching this whole thing and is just doing one of those like, I I see you. Like, I see you. You better like act up. I know who you are, but you're also helping my friend. So like get it together all in one look. And it was effective because Finn and or Flynn and Maximus just like froze and they're like, all right, we, we better straighten up. Um, there's so many points in this movie that Pascal enters and he's just, he's great. He just adds another element. Um, as far as like helping Rapunzel, he does kill mother Gothel at the end. (laughs) So like, he like 
seven dwarves her and trips her out the window and she falls to her death like he does do something um but then you also have mushu who like this one's complicated for me because basically the entire movie is just mushu helping mulan in order to gain his status as like a guardian spirit so like nothing he's doing for mulan is actually helping her it's almost more so putting her in danger a lot of the time um i understand that like mulan wants to and so by her wanting to he's taking advantage of that and like pushing her to continue to like hold up this facade that she's like her father essentially and um and it's not until he like gets caught that he apologizes and kind of flips and that that was kind of interesting to me because it's like do we or do we do i knock him for not being there for mulan to help mulan which i feel like a sidekick should be doing and only trying to use her as a pawn to help himself or is mulan's agency to represent her family well and and take the place of her father enough to like allow him to use her as a pawn it's this is like one that i've struggled with pretty much this entire time well here's something so when i watched it i was thinking that too because all the time on this podcast we talk about frauds and yeah we, we call out the frauds that exist in the disney universe and Mushu is the only character who explicitly says we are both frauds. He uses the <laughs> F word. Yeah. So yeah. in that moment, I feel like he absolves himself of all like self-centered tendencies that he might have had up until that point. Yeah. And at the end, I mean, he he's in it to win it at the very end. Him and uh, Cricky end up shooting off that firework that ends up killing Sean Yu. So yep. he he plays the same role that Pascal does. Just Pascal didn't wasn't able to do anything to help Rapunzel continue her journey to find the truth. Well and was really just along for the ride to make sure that Flynn didn't mess it up. While Mushu like got Mulan and like kept her alive and like kept the journey going essentially and even like covered for her pretended to be the um the sergeant or the captain showing up and he was riding a panda bear and like he was doing best the voice and running a, a puppet hands down best scene in the movie <laughs> it's pretty uh, yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of like mulan as a whole i don't know that i really enjoy it a ton but i think that there's a lot of snippets in there that i'm like this is such a great scene part whatever Anyways, all of that's to say that I think I'm going to go with Mushu as well here. Um, just in the part that he played in helping Mulan not only save China, essentially, but also accomplish her goal of bringing her family honor and then in turn, like, somehow bizarrely uh, ending up being with this Captain Commander guy. Um, so, yeah, I do have a new appreciation for Pascal after this bracket. I kind of dismissed him, but in review, he's fantastic. He's probably my favorite sidekick. He might not be the wow. best. He may wow. not be the best. Um, Eric, we'll go to you first with the reaction to moving Mushu on here. I think for a lot of these sidekicks, I think about 
Um, do they have a sense of duty? Do they have a sense of responsibility to the heroine or the hero? And like, uh, if you look at a lot of these, it seems like a lot of them do. They feel responsible for the well-being of the heroine or the hero. And so if the thing about Mushu is like his duty, he was assigned his duty, right? He was had to, in order to prove himself to the other gods, you know, support yeah. Mulan in her fight and I thought okay well like along the same lines what all of you are saying is that he, he had a false sense of duty and that that irked me but then I started thinking too hard about the name Pascal who's like this crazy I'm a scientist and Pascal's a crazy cool science guy and he, he like in he was one of the first people to propose the existence of vacuums like like sucking all the yeah. fresh air out of a thing and I was like there's something symbolic about Pascal being the chameleon and Rapunzel being stuck in a, a tower that I'm not gonna make that connection I thought there was a lot of cool that name Pascal that that alludes to something deeper something deeper to this character that I think you guys picked up on um, yeah overall I'm happy with the I mean, Mushu is just about the funniest, one of the funniest sidekicks here is also a point um, to, I believe it was Chris's definition of a sidekick, the comedic. I think Mushu is one of the funniest. I won't say who my favorite sidekick slash funniest sidekick okay. is, but. Let's move on down to our final matchup on the left side. It is number five, Pegasus from Hercules to number 12, Tinkerbell. Here's like the hard part about this matchup is that Tinkerbell, like, is her own thing. Like, Peter needs her help, and she's like, I'm going to get the darling kids killed. Like, I don't care what you tell me. You want me to bring them to the Lost Boys and, like, keep them safe? No. I'm going to get them killed. I'm going to have the Lost Boys shoot at them and make sure that, like, they don't survive because I do not like Wendy. Um, I... I've never really liked that, like, perception of Tinkerbell that she's jealous of Wendy because, like, Peter's in love with Wendy and therefore same. not in love with Tinkerbell. Same. I think it's very much. Same. I think it's more so like Tinkerbell doesn't necessarily trust Wendy because they don't know who Wendy is, and that even if there is a jealousy, that like attention is taken away. I don't think it's ever been in like a love sense. Like she's loved. Peter. I think it's been like it's kind of like seeing like a best friend like gravitate to a new person and you feeling left behind like I think it's more so that than the love thing so I wanted to say that off the top because I don't believe that there was any sort of like weird love triangle thing going on I agree that's a great take but she's also like not a good sidekick so like she for the most of the movie just tries to ruin everything that Peter wants to do. And it's mostly out of her own selfish intentions, even if they might be valid, maybe they're not like I, it just, she's just not in it to win it with Peter. She's there to like try and ruin his plans, even though she doesn't know the outcome of them. Um, Pegasus. I mean, he's a steed. So like, do we, how do we even like qualify him wholeheartedly as a sidekick? It's difficult he does play integral parts in like all the movie like it without him Herc wouldn't have gotten eaten up by the Hydra and then like cut through 
um without him like meg would be dead like he also is just an idiot because he's a bird so he gets tricked by pain and panic which is like i really wish i could remember the first time i saw hercules so i could see if i was surprised by the disguises that pain and panic put on you know like would i been like oh the little kids were them or like oh they're the horse like wow that's crazy so i think that like just based upon the benefit that pegasus plays to hercules i'm moving pegasus on past tinkerbell because tinkerbell doesn't care about kids and wants to kill them and stuff so yeah that's totally valid and i had a very interesting experience trying to come up with some arguments for tinkerbell i started the movie peter pan and I'm like, yeah, Tinkerbell is the worst. <laughs> she is just rude. You know, she's like telling people to shoot children. I'm like, yeah, man, like easy elimination. And then it hit me. Tinkerbell is the only character in Disney that hates Peter Pan as much as I do. <laughs> and I started relating to her on a level that I don't know that I've ever related to another Disney character. Oh, man. She is able to see... Listen, Peter Pan is not a great person either. Peter Pan no. is also super rude. Yeah. Okay? Oh, yeah. And I don't know why Wendy is, like, intrigued by him, whether it's, like, romantic or just as a friend. Like, he's such a loser, and <laughs> he's, like, in the nursery just being really mean like super chirpy at her you mm -hmm. know and he picks up tinkerbell and he's like oh pixie dust and he starts spanking her to make pixie dust come out of her and you wonder why she hates the guy and is like giving away his location to captain hook <laughs> like this man has been physically abusive towards her okay and have you ever considered the fact that fairies exist to keep the planet's natural processes working. And Neverland has a very delicate ecosystem. And when you bring in someone from the outside world, they may be bringing in all oh, kinds of infectious diseases. That's an invasive species. You may have species. invasive species sure. coming onto the island, right? And uh, so, like you said, I don't think Tink is in the wrong at all to be, like, wary of... No. Wendy. And that only I scratches mean... the surface of problems of this movie. So. Oh, well, yeah, we've we've dived in. It's <laughs> We can just touch the surface there. Tinkerbell's the character who doesn't participate in a racist song in Peter Pan. <laughs> it's true. Congrats so, to her. Points. Like yes. Um Tinkerbell is not necessarily like quote unquote a good sidekick to Peter Pan. Yeah. But she is good. And uh, when all of that is taken into consideration, I like Tinkerbell better. <laughs> and I am extremely interested in going deeper into like these Tinkerbell spinoff movies and TV shows and stuff. Good for you, Tink, for getting <laughs> away from the monster that is Peter Pan. The glow up, the Tinkerbell glow up is real, okay? <laughs> and uh, I just really admire this character. And, and, uh, our brackets always have that one character that you walk away from and you're like, oh, I like this character more now. And for me, it's definitely Tinkerbell. I came into this being like, she sucks. And I came away with it being like, yes, Tink. 
I, I feel you. I feel every one of your emotions. Also, she like takes the bomb from Peter Pan and like literally she will catch a grenade for you literally because <laughs> she did. So I don't know that you can even call her that bad of a sidekick because she also did that. So I'm going Tinkerbell, which means we're going to Eric for the tie break. Oh my goodness. Uh, I, I have biases. Of course I'm a human being. The, the only point I'll make and then I'll make my decision is People, hopefully no one who listens to this podcast is like a serious equestrian. Alyssa knows more about horses than I do. But if you want a horse to accelerate, you literally take your spurs and you kick onto the sides. So you, in order to accelerate a horse, you kick its sides. So the best sidekick has to be Pegasus. has to be Pegasus. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Just drop the mic right now. <laughs> that's, been, that's been my favorite reason for like Nina. Nina's come on and been like, Oh, I just like that dog a lot more. Julia's been on and been like, that prince is just my favorite. You've been like, literally sidekick is to horses as Pegasus is to the best. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lawyer. That, though. I love horses, so I choose Pegasus. <laughs> but also, uh, you can't have Hercules without Pegasus. It's just not possible. I'll get into my details about Pegasus when it advances. I've got some thoughts. Love it. I just Absolutely. wanted to drop my, my logic puzzle <laughs> on the pod. Thank, thank you for that. That was <laughs> incredible. <laughs> All right, well, let's hop over to the other side where we have number two, Genie, versus number 15, Victor, Hugo, and Laverne, the gargoyles from <laughs> Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> Man, deep cut from the uh, reservation squad over at Disney World. You know, I saw them and I was like, why? Why do we have to talk about these gargoyles? They don't really do anything in this movie. Like they are decent hype gargoyles. Mm-hmm. Like um, they're the ones that are like, dude, you gotta go to the festival, man. Mm-hmm. Life is gonna pass you by if you just hang out up here. So in a way, they shove Quasimodo closer to his goals, and they kind of kick off the action. They sing him a song. They sing a guy like you, mm-hmm. which not every character on this bracket has their own like sidekick song but they're going up against the sidekick that has the best sidekick song (laughs) so that point is completely negated i just feel like they're just not really relevant they're not integral to like the plot in any way um when i was watching hunchback in preparation for this all i could think about was how good judge claude frollo was and how we need to like talk about him some more (laughs) and not how much we need to talk about the gargoyles any longer um Genie, obviously, we've said before, Robin Williams, incomparable. Robin Williams is the genie. The genie is Robin Williams. And, I mean, we can talk about the complexities in, of the character in later rounds, but I'm definitely going genie here. Yeah, I'm going genie as well. Um, gargoyles, though, they do, like, come to battle at the very end. and they Yeah, they drop a brick on a guy's head. <laughs> yeah, uh, Hugo shoots, like, pebble bullets out of his mouth 
Laverne sends the pigeons to attack. Um, they don't know how to work a catapult, and it ends up just like crushing the soldiers below because they just push it off the edge. Like they did things, but none of which, besides just hyping up Quasi, got Quasi what he needed, which was just to get out into the world. But even then, like. There were so many twists and turns in that story that, like, the gargoyles weren't going to influence or help in any way. So, uh, Jeannie definitely also moves on for me. Alyssa, do you have any parting thoughts for the gargoyles? Um, I haven't seen this movie since I was six, and that's when I learned how to say damn it. And my aunt was like, don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I have no feelings towards... I actually am too afraid to watch it again. I know it's such a dark movie, so I'm definitely going with Jeannie. He also has great music and songs to sing about aladdin so there's that point (laughs) right you are it is a very dark movie let's go ahead and move down we have number seven fittingly for the seven dwarves versus number 10 lewis from princess and the frog um you know if you like break down who the seven dwarves are like homies are like hospitality experts (laughs) they find snow white and they're like, how do we make Snow White comfortable? Like, how does she feel comfortable in this room of, of seven dudes? We will take we'll take what she wants to do. Oh, we need to, like, wash our hands before dinner? Like, okay, we never do, but, like, we don't want you to feel uncomfortable. We're going to go. We're going to go do it. Oh, like you, you want a nap? Oh, you want us to you want to clean? Like you, just, you feel more comfortable in a clean house? Like, I, like well, I, I guess we will. Like, we'll, we'll help you with that. An aspect of those boys that we n- never see or talk about or n- is never brought up, um, they are real ones because they, like everybody else, they help kill the antagonist at the end, shoving her off. It. Well, she tries to throw a rock. She falls. They're there. So really, they force her to yeah, the corner. They like they like chase her on a herd of bambies to like the <laughs> precipice, and then she gets struck by lightning. <laughs> so they get an assist. They don't get the kill, but they get the assist. Okay, well, yeah, we'll we'll throw an A on their chest there. They get the assist. Um, yeah, I mean that's pretty much all I got for the seven dwarves because they're kind of just little goofy, like flexes on animation is essentially what they are. They're they're seven ways of animating. A character and Disney was like we're gonna separate those ways into seven different humans so that we can show that we know how to portray sleepiness and bashfulness and grumpiness through just like character animation so like it, it they're just all one big group of a flex but they're up against Lewis who like he's an interesting sidekick choice and it's interesting that he was even chosen here because he's like he's kind of like flounder he's really afraid and and anxious about a lot of everything um he's a alligator that wants to play the trumpet like the humans um he gets his chance and what kind of redeems himself as like a strong sidekick is that he ditches the riverboat that they try to escape on to help his friends when he could have just stayed there because the band thought that he was just a guy in an alligator suit that like could play the trumpet. So like, I guess so. He, he also just like doesn't act very quickly. So like the, um, 
he's not there to help Ray. He finds him squished when maybe he could have helped him. Um, he does have another separate redeeming quality about him, which is at the end when he like intimidates the property managers to like let Tiana buy her restaurant, which seems like this whole movie's a cop out. Let me say it's just a whole piece. And I have so many issues with this movie a bit and what it's about and how they portray. And that's just the icing on the cake is that like Tiana couldn't just like buy the place because she's worthy of it. And they need an alligator to scare the white guys into letting her sell the place. So like whatever Disney you tried. So this one's a, a pretty big toss up for me, Chris. I think that just because of the part that they play in the defeat of the antagonist, I'm going to go with the seven dwarfs. Although I do have a fun fact and maybe you were going to say this, Chris. Um, at the end of Princess and the Frog, Lewis joins a band, and that band's name is the Firefly Five Plus Lou. And that's a play on the Firehouse Five Plus Two, which was the band of Disney animators that played at Disneyland when it first opened. So there's a fun fact for everybody there. Um, but I'm going Seven Dwarfs. Yeah, Lewis is... I don't really know how to say this to Alyssa and Eric and our listeners who don't know what the Family <laughs> Vacation Center is, but Lewis feels like a character I would have written for the Farewell Show <laughs> and a summer camp play where he comes out of nowhere and is like, I want to play the trumpet, but I'm an alligator. <laughs> and they go, well, why don't you come with us on our adventure? Okay. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> like, yep. Um, it feels a lot like a Wizard of Oz situation where like a character is going on an adventure and they just pick up some randoms along the way who just are there. I really, really wanted to see Lewis overcome something. And he really easily is able to go with those guys in the animal suits to go play <laughs> the music. Like, I would have loved to see him, like, super hesitant about it and, like, think about it for a while because his whole thing is, like, he goes to Mama Odie and is like, I want to play music, make me a human. She's like, dig a little deeper. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay. And it didn't feel like he dug very deep to, like, <laughs> go out to play the music. And then the next time we see him perform is at Tiana's Palace which he's just riding Tiana's coattails. Like, of course he would have a gig there. So, like, he didn't have to over- overcome anything in that moment either. I would have loved to see Lewis have, like, his own gig, like, somewhere else in New Orleans or something like that. I just think Lewis is, is super weak. So I agree with you. I'm giving this win to the dwarves simply because they, like you said, played a role in the defeat of the villain in this movie. Eric. Any thoughts on Lewis or the Seven Dwarves here? I'm just looking at the bracket and seeing they'll proceed against Genie, so I'll save them some sorrow. <laughs> yeah, this matchup is basically who wants to lose the Genie next round, <laughs> but we'll take it into our next matchup, which is the number three seed Olaf from Frozen versus number 14 Turk from Tarzan. <laughs> All right, well, uh, here we go, folks. It's time for me to talk about (laughs) Olaf, everyone's favorite subject on this show. I very much have a love-hate relationship 
with Olaf. You despised him in Frozen 2. He caused you to walk I... out of the theater in Frozen 2. <laughs> yeah, so I'll get there. Um, basically, <laughs> there are two sides to the character that is Olaf. One is the humor side. He's comic relief. And in Frozen, the first Frozen, I think it works really well. I think his timing is great. I don't think Josh Gad lays it on too thick. All of the comedy beats are very organic. It's him like reacting directly to situations. Um, it feels really genuine and really realistic. In Frozen 2, it just goes completely off the rails. And it turns into Olaf just like randomly having these little humor barbs like that. <laughs> turtle poop or something like that and it's like oh oh my god Olaf said turtle poop that's so funny <laughs> like that's not what makes Olaf funny he's not just funny because he's weird he's funny because he's naive and um they really tried to take the character in a different direction in Frozen 2 by making him kind of this like middle schooler type where he's like gotten a little bit smarter and I think that was just like a total misstep for the Olaf character and Yes, I walked out of the theater because Olaf started doing the Frozen 1 recap and I was like I can't I can't do this movie. <laughs> I have to leave. So I stepped out of the theater for like 10 minutes and I just like took some breath and I was like, "All right. Let's go back in and try this again." <laughs> and the movie got a lot better after that. Uh, once Olaf stopped with all of like the stupid jokes he had at the beginning. The song in the first Frozen in Summer really works. It's it's nice and short. It's only like a minute and a half long or something like that. It's just a running, like ironic joke. Um, but it's done like in a really dry kind of way that is is super funny, super effective, and the song has a lot of replay value. Uh the song in Frozen Two, I just it did not hit for me. You have at to all. like hear it and watch at the same time. It's not something like in summer that you can just right. throw on. Right. Right. A lot of visual um, The cues. Samantha stuff in Frozen 2 also was not really working for me. I loved it. I thought it was funny. <laughs> and then you've got the other aspect of Olaf, and that is the fact that he's kind of this physical manifestation of the love between Anna and Elsa. And, like, that is Olaf at his best. In Frozen 1, he comes to life that second time when Elsa's powers are on the fritz. And he lives on even when summer comes around again. And that kind of becomes like his little, just his little existence is like a symbol that Anna and Elsa love each other. And then when he like dies, quote unquote, in Frozen 2, where he like turns into a mist or whatever it is, the audience really gets the feeling that like there's something wrong with this relationship between Anna and Elsa. And I love that moment. I mean, it leads Anna into like having to face her demons in the way that she puts too much value in her relationship with Elsa. So this Olaf character is really important in that moment. But the humor stuff in Frozen 2 is just so unforgivable to me <laughs> um, that like that character stuff is really not even like Olaf. Like we can't even count that as like points for Olaf. Like that's just points for the story, you know? <laughs> Uh, we're not even going to talk about Olaf's Frozen Adventure because that's just that's just a cursed movie. <laughs> so um, I have Olaf in Frozen 2 scored as like a D and Olaf in Frozen 1 as like an A. So Olaf the character is like a, a C 
C plus mm-hmm. uh, when you factor in both movies. On the other hand, you've got Turk, who is kind of like Tarzan's link to the animal world. She's someone that Tarzan can relate to. She kind of picks on Tarzan a little bit at the beginning. Mm-hmm. She like asks him to what, go pick an elephant hair yeah. or something like that. Um, so she doesn't exactly give him a very warm welcome. What do you got on Turk? Because I really don't have a whole lot. I don't want to like give Olaf the default win here uh-huh. because <laughs> he's certainly flawed, but I don't have a lot of Turk upside. I think, well, Turk is another kind of like hype man. Uh, when he tells Tarzan to go uh, grab an elephant hair from the tail of an elephant, it was to try and keep Tarzan from hanging out with the rest of them because they knew that um, the leader gorilla didn't want Tarzan hanging out with them and doing the gorilla stuff. So he, so Turk's like, oh, yeah, like, uh, we're going to go play in the elephant pool and, like, we're going to try and grab tail, but it's super dangerous, so, like, you probably shouldn't come. And, like, when she turns back around, he's already out. He's, like, going to go. So that plan didn't really work for her. Um, I think that, like, what's interesting with Turk in Tarzan is that we know Turk as being like Tarzan's best friend, but it's really um, Tantor, the elephant who like steps up in a big way because once Turk kind of grows up, she doesn't want anything to do with Tarzan and Jane and like the human aspect and like Tarzan breaking the rules and stops kind of sticking up for him and even is hesitant to go rescue him and Jane when they hear, uh, them screaming from the boat when they're about to leave because the evil guy locked them up. So Tantar is the one that's like, we got We got to go, man. Like, what are you, why are you not taking action right now? You're his best friend. Like we should go help rescue. So like at the end of the day, Tantar is the ride or die and not Turk. So for those reasons, I was moving Olaf on and I'm with you. I kind of dismissed Olaf and frozen Two. I kind of really based his sidekickness on frozen one. Um, and even that was enough to move him past Turk here for me. Yeah. Fortunately, he does kind of fade into the background by like the middle part of Frozen 2. So I think I'm going to join you in, in advancing Olaf. I think what he does in Frozen 1 is enough to, to move him past Turk at least. Alyssa, you said that you saw Frozen and then you're like, I'm out. Yeah. That was enough. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> I don't. I don't like that movie. There's like good songs in it, but Olaf's character just it really irks me. Um, but I can understand why you would choose Olaf after the arguments. I just personally don't like that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's totally cool. Many people don't, but uh, and especially because of Olaf. But that's <laughs> yeah. a whole different discussion for a different day. We are ready to wrap up this episode with the final matchup. Number six, Thumper from Bambi versus number 11, Little John from Robin Hood. Um, are you joking? Is this even supposed to be hard? <laughs> Little John, like the ultimate sidekick right here. He's like... Not Slow only, Slow not only down. advising Robin Hood as to like, Ayo, like you should, like you should propose to uh, Maid Marian, like she's into you, and he's like, oh no, and like no, you should, you really should, to like disguising and going along with his plans 
to planting the plans in Robin's head and then Robin helps to execute to helping Robin distract while Robin goes and punks Prince John. Like he's there for the cause and he's ready to like act when he needs to. And that's a loyal sidekick right there. That's dope. I like that. I like little John and it's uh, interesting because Robin Hood's probably of the movies on this list, the one that I've seen the least, but he stands out to me pretty strong here. Um, he's up against Thumper who like <laughs> Thumper's an awesome friend and sidekick in that he helped bring Bambi into like the world. He's the one that is like, yo, these are flowers. They smell super good. <laughs> oh, but that's a skunk. And now he's our friend. So flowers, that skunk. They also name, unless that's just a nickname for, for the skunk, but they just straight up name the skunk. Like forget what your mom said. Your <laughs> name is flower from here on out um they he teaches bambi how to ice skate um he's raised with a obvious big family of rabbits and uh is taught his morals from what his daddy used to say can't say nothing nice don't say nothing at all but then like bambi's a hard one because it's really your it's a story of like the the growth of a child, the growth of this deer and the many things that this deer has to deal with. And it was obviously like a movie that was and the original story was one about essentially environmentalism and like, we got to stop hunting. We got to stop being humans and like burning things down. Like it's affecting animals and life on the planet. So the part that Thumper plays feels like it's just a part of the story and it's really just the beginning part to me um while on the other hand little john's there ride or die for robin the entire time so i'm moving little john on first of all <laughs> i know the seattle nhl team does not have an official name yet but the seattle thumpers i feel like should be very much in play because okay. thumper has some skills on the ice <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> and therefore Thumper, he moves on. <laughs> Thumper, Thumper teaching Bambi how to say bird. That, yeah. that was cute. Yeah. Bart. May I say iconic? Bird. Bird. Bart. 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 Thumper doesn't eat his vegetables. Okay. Okay, so I agree with you everything you just said and i agree that these movies are really completely different and they're trying to tell different stories and yes bambi is about growth death and regrowth both like in these forest creatures and like the entire forest ecosystem in general and so i was thinking about this and i was like is thumper a sidekick like at all and then it kind of hit me that Thumper feels like a sidekick in the same way that like my best friends feel like sidekicks. Hmm. Sometimes we all have to come to terms with the fact that we are all heroes of our own stories in life. And the people around us, you know, they might not always like help us reach our concrete goals. Like my best friends don't go with me to the job interview, but you know, we're going through life together and we're comparing notes on stuff and we'll be like, hey man, here's something I learned about this thing. And then 
One of my friends will be like, well, here's something I learned about this thing. Or, you know, be like, hey, what is this? I need help. I need help on this. Uh, and, you know, they're there for us. And we have big milestones. They're there to celebrate for us. And they're to pump us up when we need it. They're to help us when we need it. Literally there to pick us up when we fall down, when we're on the ice sheet of life. <laughs> so I think Thumper really is a good character. I mean, you kind of have to dig beneath the surface a little bit, but I think Thumper provides a lot of value to the young prince. Little John also agree with everything you said. I think Robin Hood is nothing without Little John. I think these two... Like, Lil John and Robin Hood are the closest thing to a dynamic duo we might have on this bracket. Because there aren't a whole lot of scenes in Robin Hood where we see, like, Robin actually directing Lil John what to do. Being like, I am the brains of this operation, you are my number two. It's like, they've been together for so long, they're just like, they just know. They just know exactly what they have to do to pull off the con. Um, So on the one hand, you're like... Yeah, that makes Little John the ultimate. Like, Robin Hood would not be where he is without him. But on the other hand, it's like, are they really, is this really a sidekick situation or is this like a partnership situation? Ultimately, what it comes down to for me is when in doubt, always, always choose Bambi. So (laughs) I am going with number six, Thumper, which means we're going to Alyssa to break the tie. Um... Wow. I, with all of these, I have one opinion and then I just kind of get swayed because y'all are so good at these <laughs> points. <laughs> I, I wanted to say that little John was a true like comrade throughout the whole thing, but yeah, your, your, your point on how, you know, sometimes friends are the true sidekicks of our lives and I might have to go with Thumper for this one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Can we great... just dump it out? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if Little John proceeded, though, we could hear people's Little John impressions more. We could. We could. You're and just baiting somebody to thunder. do it. <laughs> <laughs> strategic. Very strategic. Oh, man. All right. Well, time for me to pocket another L. We have our eight matchups to kick off the next episode. Over on the left-hand side of the bracket, we have number 16, Cogsworth and Lumiere versus number 8, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. Uh, We have number 4, Mushu versus number 5, Pegasus. And then on the right-hand side, we have number 2, Genie versus number 7, the Seven Dwarves. And to round out the final 8 here, we have number 3, Olaf, facing off versus number 6, Thumper. Uh, Eric and Alyssa... Thank you guys for joining us for this one. Uh, I hope you had some fun. I hope you guys will be back for the next episode. And I hope you keep bringing your your biases and opinions to this podcast because it's going to keep it interesting. Yeah, thanks. This is awesome. Definitely. That was a lot of fun. Okay, y'all, you know where to reach us. You can send us a tweet at Mouse Madness Pod on Twitter. You can send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. We will read your email on the air here. Uh, You can also join our Facebook group or our Discord server, which is linked in the description of this podcast, as well as the show notes to this episode. Until next time, like me.